2: We bring you news and analysis every day on the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best and economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. This is an important conversation. Why the duration? Ron Dermer is Israeli Minister of Strategic Affairs, but far more. He was ambassador of Israel to the United States for seven years. His extended period in Washington, his work at Wharton, among others, is noted. And to have Ambassador Dermer with us, John, with his experience across all of a decade is important.
3: Minister, thank you for being with us this morning. And I think first and foremost, we have to extend our deepest sympathies to You and the people of Israel, our first thoughts go to the hostages, the scores of hostages that were taken over the weekend. And as you know, there are some reports at the moment in the media that we'd love to get an on-the-record response from you on. This from Reuters a little bit early this morning, that Qatari mediators have held talks with Hamas officials to try to negotiate the release of Israeli women and children held in Gaza. Minister, are there active talks led by Qatar to release hostages?
0: Well, what I guess you just read to me is that Qataris were talking to Hamas about it. Uh, Israel's not been negotiating with anybody.
3: Has Qatar spoken to you about the release of hostages and their role they might play as a mediator?
0: As I said, what the Qataris speaking to Hamas and talking about different things. Look, uh, people are outraged by what happened. I'm sure you're outraged. I appreciate the condolences. I know they're heartfelt and they're deeply appreciated. Uh, we haven't seen something like this, even in the Middle East, which, as you know, is, has a lot of brutality and savagery in it. We haven't seen savagery like this since ISIS. When you have killers, uh, scores of uh, hundreds, really, of terrorists who, who uh, invaded Israel on, on Saturday morning on uh, trucks with AK-47s and just mowed down people who were at a dance festival, went into people's homes, killed whole families, kidnapped children. Uh, women, elderly, this thing is sick and it's savage. And you really have a battle between the forces of civilization uh, on the one side and the forces of barbarism. And civilization is, is gonna have to win. And that's exactly what we're gonna do in the days ahead. And as you heard from Secretary Blinken, it may take some time, but we're gonna exact such a high price that not only will Hamas never consider doing this again, I think none of Israel's enemies. Uh, are going to ever think about doing something like this again. You know, the the feeling of euphoria on the other side, uh, Israelis, those of a certain age, remember 1973 when a surprise attack was launched against us on two different fronts. Uh, There was euphoria then for a few days, but then Israel turned the tide. And the end of the war looked very different than the beginning of the war, and this is exactly what's going to happen now.
3: Minister, based on what you've just told us, can we just assume then that a full-ground invasion is inevitable?
0: We're going to do whatever we have to do to send a lesson that they're going to understand for many, many decades, not just Hamas, not just the other terror organizations in Gaza, but all the terror organizations and all the enemies of Israel. And Iran is the biggest enemy of all. And they're pulling the strings behind the scenes, giving money, giving weapons, having meetings to try to coordinate attacks in Israel. And as I speak to you, Iran is trying to push other people into the theater of war. Uh, We're going to have to send a message to everybody because Israel, you know, as you know, we're a tiny country. We're about the size of New Jersey. America is about 40 times the population that we have, which goes to show you how heinous the attack was yesterday. Uh, Because when you have maybe a thousand people uh, in Israel who were killed on a single day and your population is 40 times the size, it's around 40,000 Americans. That's more than 10, 9-11. So you can imagine the sense of disgust that we have. We have to send a message to all of Israel's enemies because we're a strong country, but we're tiny, and we can go from strength to vulnerability. I think people are gonna see the strength of Israel, the might of Israel, uh, and I hope that the wall-to-wall support that we uh, appreciate, that we have today, from President Biden, uh, the support on both sides of the aisle in Washington, I hope in the days ahead that that support continues when Israel has to do what it has to do in order to exact such a heavy price from this terror organization, that not only do they not threaten us, that they don't threaten any civilized country around the world. Believe me, this will inspire terrorists the world over, just like you had the ISIS caliphate that started do inspiring people all around the globe. The world came together and understood they have to crush that caliphate. We have a force like that right in our backyard, not thousands of miles away, but right in our backyard, a few meters over the borders, and we're going to have to crush both their capability and also their spirit. They will rue the day two days ago. We're going to remember that day Israel will always remember that day, but all the terror organizations around us are going to remember this period for a very long time and the critical miscalculation that Hamas made, thinking that it was going to be business as usual in Israel. Believe me, it is not. The people are outraged, uh, and they have awoken not a sleeping giant, but a sleeping Maccabee, and they're going to see it in the days and weeks ahead.
3: Minister, you mentioned Iran. Have you seen personally, or are you aware of, any evidence that Iran was directly responsible and helped coordinate these attacks over the weekend?
0: Well, let me tell you what we do know for sure. But we know for sure that Iran provides 90, the last numbers I saw, 93% of the military budget uh, of Hamas is provided for by Iran. They are trying and have worked to put weapons, not in, just into Gaza, but also in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, they also support hezbollah as you know on our northern border we know that as a fact we know that iran has coordinated meetings with all of its terrorist proxies in the region hamas in gaza and another uh, terror organization palestinian islamic jihad in gaza and hezbollah almost a kind of joint operations i don't want to say joint operation center but coordinated meetings it was one question that i'm sure you're interested in did they know about this beforehand initially We didn't think that they did. Now there is some evidence that they might have known about it. We are working to verify that evidence. That's why maybe there's some uh, conflicting reports in the press that we don't exactly know. But now that we're looking back and we're looking at all of our intel and seeing exactly what the situation is, it's still not clear to us, but they might have done it. But I have to tell you, they are Mm -hmm. working right now to bring more and more uh, terror groups into this fight. So everyone has to know it. And it's important not just... I think, to stand unequivocally with Israel against Hamas, to call for freeing the hostages, but also to stand unequivocally against Iran. You know, there's going to be a... a, 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 a the UN Security Council can tomorrow, Europe, uh, France, Britain, Germany, they can work to snap bang the UN sanctions, the Security Council sanctions against Iran. You have to enforce oil sanctions against Iran. They're exporting a lot of oil. They're getting a lot of money, tens of billions of dollars. It's time that the world unites against Iran, because what you're seeing today is a tentacle of an Iranian octopus. And we have to not only cut off the tentacle, we have to deal with the regime that is sending them. Uh, And I hope that the world will stand with Israel, as I said, in the days and weeks ahead to reverse this and turn it uh, into a victory against terrorism and barbarism.
3: Minister, we have some news to work through on our side, and I'd love to continue this conversation with you at the same time. According to the CBS White House reporter, at least nine Americans were killed in Israel. As I'm sure you know, this goes beyond the people of Israel. The whole world is looking at this moment. Just on Iran, you mentioned that you may have some evidence that implicates Iran directly for the operations that took place over the weekend. Could you share with us the nature of that evidence?
0: Unfortunately, I can't uh... if i could i would uh... but i can't and we're gonna have to look through it uh, now our working assumption is that they may have our working assumption a couple of days ago was that they hadn't known about it directly now it is unclear and we'll have to wait to verify it and you know when we make an official statement we will make an official statement but we have to work some work through that right now because i want to make sure that when i say it we know with hundred percent certainty now that is our working assumption
3: we did hear this from the wall street journal that Iranian security officials helped plan Hamas's attacks and gave a green light for the assault at a meeting in Beirut last Monday, according to senior members of Hamas and Hezbollah. Are you aware of a meeting that took place in the last week between Iran and leadership of Hamas and Hezbollah?
0: They have meetings all the time. It's not secret. Uh, You can see pictures of them meeting (coughs) with Iran leadership, uh, the leadership of their uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard, leadership, their Quds Force leadership, meeting with these other senior officials. So they've had many, many, many meetings over the last few months, and they work very hard. What is Iran trying to do? Those of you, those of your viewers who know the map of the Middle East know that Iran supports the Shia militias in Iraq. They're trying to uh, establish a beachhead, a terrorist beachhead against Israel and Syria. They support Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is the northern part of Israel. They support both Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas in Gaza. They support the Houthis in Yemen. And what they're trying to do is put a noose around Israel's neck with all of these terror groups there. And uh, and we have to to make sure that we break out of that noose and and deliver such a mighty blow that they're not going to forget it for generations.
2: Ambassador, I want to take your years of experience here, and it's outside your remit, but I'm sure it's something everyone wants to know. I can't get my head around how Israel invades the Gaza Strip. Do you anticipate substantial bombing and air attack, or are we ready for some definitive, original, building-to-building urban warfare in Gaza?
0: Well, because I'm a member of the security cabinet, I'm not going to discuss that. Uh, Let's just say we have a clear goal to cripple the capabilities of Hamas and also their will to wage war against us. So you're going to have to interpret that the way you want. I have to leave it at that. But it's people who doubt Israel's capabilities are making a huge mistake. Uh, We will do what we have to do in order to achieve that goal. And we are going to have to achieve this goal, obviously, first and foremost for Israel. But it's for all of our Arab partners in the region. Believe me, put aside all of those statements that are made by foreign ministries in the region. And some of you may have conversations with officials from the Middle East, and they may tell you a very different story Mm -hmm. about Israel than they may be saying publicly. Uh, there have been times in the past where Israel has fought with these terror organizations. Right. And the ones who are rooting for us, usually first and foremost, are these Arab states who are threatened right. by these jihadi forces. Whether it's a Shia jihadi force uh, or a Shia group like Iran and its proxies or a Sunni group like Hamas, they don't want these right. forces of barbarism to win because they threaten them. Ambassador? So, and this is very—just just one thing, if I may— this is also very important for the pursuit of peace eventually, Right. because no one is going to make peace with the weak. We have to be very strong, and it's strength that is actually going to improve our chances to reach an historic peace agreement with Saudi Arabia, which I have no doubt is one of the reasons right. why this action was taken at this time.
2: For our audience, Ambassador Dermer, can you triangulate the focus obviously on Gaza, but also now on the West Bank and a fractious northern border with Lebanon? How will Israel affect a three-front war?
0: Well, we have to uh, ensure that our force structure is done in a certain way, that we can deal with any threats that would materialize. And you say quite rightly we have issues on the northern border. We had sirens there just about an hour ago. We had an attack there yesterday. There are different attempts for attacks. So we have to be clear on our northern border that we have all the capabilities we need to defend ourselves, As you know, uh, the United States brought a carrier group into the Eastern Mediterranean. I think that sends a very strong message to deter our enemies, uh, and it makes it clear that America backs Israel. And again, we're deeply appreciative of the Biden administration for doing that. I think it makes the chances of war less likely, not more likely. And of course, as you said, in the West Bank and Judea and Samaria, we've had terror actions that have happened there, and we have an eye on that. We have to have our eye on a a sort of a 360 uh, radius in order to deal with all these different challenges. But I'll tell you, the chances of having a multi-front war grow when people see Israel as being vulnerable. So the stronger and faster we act, the more it will send a message of strength and purpose. And that message is critical to actually ultimately de-escalate the situation and prevent these things from happening for many, many decades. This is an attack, I wanna say it again, the likes of which has never happened in the state of Israel. We we may have lost a thousand people in a single day.
1: That has never
0: happened in the state of Israel.
1: Ambassador, there's a big question around Saudi Arabia and the talks about normalizing relations. I know you've been involved with those, and it seems like those are uh, at least iced in the near term. Saudi Arabia put out a statement saying that it repeated its warnings of the dangers of the explosion of the situation as a result of the continued occupation and deprivation of the Palestinian Palestinian people of their legitimate rights. How much do you see this as really precluding additional discussions with Saudi Arabia and making this kind of normalization talk not viable in the near term?
0: Well, a lot of people were surprised by the Abram Accords, you know, a few years ago when no one thought that that could possibly happen. But Israel proved itself. It's it's strength, frankly, it's security strength, it's economic vitality. I think that's what made those accords ultimately possible. I think the critical question of whether we're going to be able to achieve this historic peace with Saudi Arabia, that that pulls the whole Arab-Israeli conflict into a completely different place and can lead to a broader reconciliation between Muslims uh, and Jews as well. The critical factor will be how Israel emerges from this fight, or do we emerge as a victor? Because people make uh, peace with winners. People make peace with the strong. They do not make peace with the weak. And that will be the critical factor. I'm telling you, take all the statements, all the diplomatic statements that have been made, put them aside, it's not relevant. I think there are many Arab partners in this region that want a different future, that are thinking about what's going to happen in 20, 30, 40 years down the road when oil doesn't have the value to their countries that it has today. They need a partner in Israel that can help strengthen their own national security, that can help their own national prosperity. You saw a few weeks ago with the G20 uh, when several countries, uh, the United States, European countries, India, launched this, uh, this vision of an economic corridor that would go from Uh, India, through uh, the Arabian Peninsula, into Israel and towards Europe. I mean, that's a game changer, an economic game changer for the region. And I think the Saudis have great plans for building their country. And believe me, there are a lot of people in a lot of places in the Middle East, no matter what they say publicly or rooting for Israel, to win. And I think they're going to get exactly what they
3: want. Minister, just to wrap things up, because I know you have to go, one final question, winning. How do you define victory in a moment like this one?
0: Uh, Like I said, you have to uh, cripple their capability and you have to crush their will to do such an action for decades and decades to come. Not just Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but also other terror organizations in the region. We rely as a small country on our deterrence, but deterrence doesn't last forever. You have to exercise power and force to always make clear to your enemies that you're prepared to fight. Not only do you have the capability, but you have the will to fight. And our enemies, Hamas, obviously miscalculated here, because if they think that this action that they just took in murdering a 1,000 Israelis and, and, and just shooting our civilians and taking scores of people hostage and having over maybe 3,000 people who are wounded, that this is gonna be business as usual, they just have no idea who the people of Israel are, and I think they're gonna find out in the days ahead.
3: Minister, we appreciate your time this morning, a very difficult time for your country, and hopefully we can catch up again soon. Ron Dermadeh, the Israeli Minister of Strategic Affairs.
2: We forget in 73, that Israeli forces got within X miles of Damascus to the north and they made it to the Suez Canal in over the Suez Canal in 73. That's a bit of history that I think people really are, are, are wide on. This all comes up to the geopolitics of the region. Expert on this and a good friend of Bloomberg's Surveillance is Ellen Wald, senior fellow at Atlantic Council. Her book, Saudi Inc is definitive on hydrocarbons. Ellen, thank you so much for joining uh, this morning. Really, really uh, timely to have you uh, with us. How does Israel get its oil? Are they in some way oil independent?
4: They're not really oil independent. Um, Israel actually does or used to get quite a bit of oil from the Kurdistan region of Iraq. It was shipped out via the Jehan pipeline um, from, from the port of Jehan uh, in Turkey to uh, ports in Israel, to to Haifa and to other, other ports. I don't think Israel's particularly concerned about getting oil or making sure that they have enough oil at this point. Though, uh, one interesting point that uh, has just come up is that Israel um, asked Chevron to shut down the operation of the Tamar gas field platform, which is uh, out in the Mediterranean, in the northern part of Israel. And to me, that says that either they think that there could potentially be some sort of terrorist attack uh, on that platform, um, which uh, potentially either from Iran or Hezbollah, Mm -hmm. which I would say definitely signals to me a widening of this um, highly regional conflict and something that actually could be uh, a potential threat to uh, oil markets, to to gas markets, um, especially if you consider that, uh, like you said, the Suez Canal is not all that far.
2: To take it to Saudi Arabia and your expertise there, which part of Palestine does Saudi Arabia does the royal family support?
4: That's a great question and they're definitely much more interested in the Palestinian Authority uh, run parts uh the West Bank than they are with Hamas. Hamas and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, they, they see Hamas as a very destabilizing element, uh, especially the, the Saudi monarchy uh, does not like terrorists. Terrorists are just as much a threat to them and to their stability uh, as they are to, to other areas. So, uh, you know, and, and what's interesting is that they keep pushing for this uh, regional uh, two-state solution, regional uh, peace Uh, agreement, they have always said that their recognition of Israel depends upon uh, a regional uh, peace deal and two-state solution, which is one of the reasons why I think it hasn't really gone very far uh, and haven't seen very much, because that's not something that uh, Israel or that the U.S. is really prepared to uh, push for at this point. Uh, The question is, will they drop this in favor of uh, getting a defense pact from Washington as uh, they've they haven't quite indicated that, but they definitely have indicated that that's a top priority for them, especially on the nuclear front. Uh, And so that says to me that maybe they're willing to negotiate a bit on that requirement.
3: Ellen, there was also talk going into the weekend that as part of this pact, the likelihood is that we would get crude output increased into next year. And as you look across the region now, where will Saudi Arabia stand on that particular point? And what could this mean for Iran production and those barrels of oil that find their way on international markets?
4: Exactly. And Iran has been selling more oil recently, uh, not necessarily because they're evading sanctions anymore, because sanctions are not as tight as they were, but simply because Iran has been able to increase their production. And so they're selling more with prices up uh, across uh, you know, across the markets, Iran is able to get more money for its oil, even if it's still selling it at a discount, uh, and even though it's got competition from, from Russian oil. So if Saudi Arabia puts out another million barrels a day uh, than they are right now, that would definitely threatened Iran's, uh, Iran's money-making scheme uh, from oil uh, because it would send prices lower. Of course, there are lots of other things that could also send prices lower for for Iran. So that's not the only issue here. I think it's, it's compelling that Saudi Arabia sees that million barrels a day as a bargaining chip with the United States. They're saying, hey, you're going into an election year that could be tough. We can put a million barrels a day back on the market and lower oil prices for you if you help us out if you get us this defense pact before uh, you know election season before a new a new administration comes in and we have to start all over. Uh, so I think that's a very uh, compelling chip that Saudi Arabia has thrown into into the game here you talked about Iran selling more oil and it
1: comes at a time where there's talk of the potential for sanctions or additional punitive measures if Iran is deemed to have a more active role in the planning and the execution of uh, this attack. From your vantage point, how realistic is that? What kind of influence could that have not only on the price of crude, but just in general uh, to the region and the geopolitics there?
4: That's a really good point. I think that any kind of um, tightening of sanctions is not really going to have much of an impact. It's purely, uh, you know, uh, something that uh, it's it's purely just uh, hyperbole and and rhetoric, because enforcing sanctions is a multi-year long process. Now, if we were hearing talk of, say, a blockade against Iranian ships leaving the Persian Gulf, that would be a totally different story. So if the United States is willing to take its navy and and ensure that Iranian ships can't get out of the Persian Gulf to sell their oil or that ships that have transferred uh, Iranian oil to them and not maybe Iranian ships can't get out. That would be a huge shift uh, away from the current policy, which is just um, let's try to enforce sanctions. It takes, you know, three, four, five years to do that. Uh, And that could definitely cause a major Uh, spreading of the geopolitical conflict, I would say if that happens, oil prices would go through the roof. But Ellen, can you just
1: say on a broader level then, do you think that any kind of interruption or disruption to oil production has been overstated, particularly in the price of oil this morning? Or do you think that there is a broader implication as this goes on that you are watching? I think
4: that the four dollar increase that we saw overnight was too much. Um, You know, we've had regional conflict between Israel and Gaza before and oil prices jump a little and then they come back down because people realize there is no larger impact to oil producers. But in this case, we are really, I think, on the verge of a larger geopolitical regional uh, conflict. There are so many other pieces here that it isn't uh, that, that the jump in oil prices is basically anticipating that it's anticipating anticipating that there could be some kind of disruption uh, and that that's more likely in this case than it has been in the past. We need to diagnose the
3: sell-off as well last week too, Ellen. If we can finish there, I think it's important. Was that sell-off in anticipation of potential boost to crude output from Saudi or was it because we saw evidence of our demand limits being tested by this price surge?
4: Uh, I think it's it's the second. It's definitely more of a larger uh, demand issue that uh, is coming to light or that is finally being realized in the market. Uh, I do think that the news that Saudi Arabia could increase production starting in 2024 if this uh, you know, if they get what they want from Washington is definitely could definitely be a catalyst. But that really didn't come out until until Friday. And the sell off had started uh, before that. So I do think it's much more based on the uh, demand issue.
3: That news was dated pretty quickly. Let's put it that way. And a thank you and a world of the Atlantic Council. Steve Chevron joins us now at a multi-asset solutions at Federated Hermes. Steve, a question I think people will be asking in the market is whether this represents a durable headwind to investor sentiment. Do you think it could?
5: Yeah, I mean, it certainly adds to uncertainty. I mean, it's a difficult question to answer, John. I mean, just watching the footage over the weekend, I mean, I know we have a job to do, but I feel like equities are the least important thing, considering some of the images we saw over the weekend. I mean, all things being considered, just trying to decipher it, obviously it's it's an upward pressure on the commodity complex and oil. It adds to uncertainty in the markets. Um, Yeah, you saw bonds rally a little bit, but not not anything major. I mean, we've seen Treasury yields go up 10 basis points in a day, you know, a four basis point decline in international high quality bonds isn't much. Um, I think the point you just made, though, is is the appropriate one. You know, what happens next? And does this spread, does it become a wider regional conflict? And that has all kinds of implications. But at this point... And we all have right. to wait and see. Uh, you
2: are you wonderful at the cross asset analysis. This bond debacle that we're in right now, how does it affect Steve Roth? I mean, is he getting his requisite nine hours sleep a night? How does it affect the world of equities?
5: So Steve and I are very close. I don't know what he does at night. Um, w- w- what I will say is that you know there's a lot of. It's a hard one to tell. You, you've got a yield curve that's uninverting, um, and historically, when that happens. That's a real imminent sign of recession, but it's never uninverted this way, which is this kind of bearish steepener. It's not like the two-year yield is falling in anticipation of cuts. You've got a 10-year that's rising. And the question is, is, is there a buyer's strike on the Treasury, or is the market trying to normalize to a new normal of a kind of 5% to right. 6% nominal GDP? And one of those is much more bullish than the other.
2: Tell me about value versus growth. I mean, I was shocked on the yeah. Exxon Pioneer transaction rumored last week that these are 10 and 12 and 13 multiple companies, where we're talking about the, the chosen seven are 25 and 30 multiple companies Is well. How do you define a federated growth in value?
5: Well, just using a simple kind of Russell 1000 growth versus value. Um, you know, coming into this year, we thought inflation would be a little bit more durable and the Fed would hike more than the market expected. That was right. We thought growth might struggle a little under that environment, and that wasn't. Um, We still think that this market broadens out. Uh, We think it broadens out to cyclicals pricing out some recession risk, at least in the short run. We think the dividend players and their safety are attractive. And so, yeah, we've nibbled on large-cap growth on the most recent sell-off because we've been so underweight, but we still think that there's an opportunity for the market to broaden out.
1: There's a question about how much can change in a minute, given some of the concern that we're seeing percolate out of yet another front for a geopolitical conflagration. How much would your view change should oil sort of bear the brunt of this if we do see any kind of disruption and we do see oil prices climb above $100 barrels, 100 a barrel on a sustainable basis?
5: Yeah, I mean, it, look, what the market and the Fed are trying to pull off here is an inside straight to a softer landing. Um, And so anything that makes that path more difficult is a challenge, whether or not that's higher oil prices, resurgent inflation, rising delinquencies, you know, a a 10-year yield that becomes unhinged to the upside. Those are all risk factors, Um, and I think what the last year has told us is you want to be humble. You want portfolios that are close to neutral. Uh, pointed in the direction of your fundamental view and so you know we think markets are a little bit upside biased here or or certainly before the weekend Um, but you want to stay close to neutral and humble because there's a lot of risk factors out here that are really unprecedented
3: city this morning saying the conflict in israel to come as a stagflationary shock to the israeli economy could you say the same thing about the global economy right now given what you're seeing elsewhere
5: it's certainly possible but again i I think what has to happen there to be a, a real stagflationary event is you need to draw on some of the northern countries or you need a tax on really, not Iranian refineries or things of that nature. There's probably not enough of an oil price shock where things are located today, but a spreading of that certainly can. And again, look, on this theme of humility, John, if you would have asked me you know, what would have happened in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, who would have gotten the market reaction right? And so these are, we're not experts in these areas, and we stick to the fundamentals as best as we can.
3: It's one of those mornings where you can learn something about how the market is responding to this incoming information and events mm-hmm. over the weekend. In some ways, it's a shame the cash treasury market is closed today. Okay. Are we learning that bonds still provide those risk mitigation characteristics I on a morning di- like I this morning? I think there's
5: no question about that. Every, every time that, that bonds as a, as a downside protection mechanism have been doubted, you know, they, 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 they show up. Um, and so, look, I mean, unless we're looking at some, you know, massively secular buyer strike, and, and I, I think it's premature to say that, I, I, I think when there's trouble in the world, the safest asset is the United States Treasury, and I don't think anything's changed about that. And I think we'll probably see that tomorrow.
1: What are you watching? As this sort of progresses over the next hours and days, as we read all of the news and how it's uh, potentially spreading or being contained, what are you looking for to potentially change your outlook one way or another?
5: Well, again, I I think, you know, spreading north, whether it's Lebanon or or, or whether there's any kind of direct involvement with the Iranians would certainly be something to watch. Um, I, I think in addition, you know, if you start to see... I don't know how to say this, but if you see kind of any terrorist activity in in non-Middle Eastern countries, you know, that's something that certainly could shake confidence in the world and you watch closely. And then honestly, Lisa, more than anything, it's just
3: watching in horror at the atrocities that are going on and feeling heartbroken about it. Just truly shocking. Steve, thank you, sir. Thanks for the insight this morning. Steve Chevron there at Federated Hermes. (laughs) The Israel-Hamas conflict entering the third day with over 1,100 dead. Israeli forces responding with strikes in Gaza after the militant group entered Israel, taking hostages over the weekend. The Wall Street Journal reporting Iranian security officials helped plan what would be the biggest Israeli security failure in decades. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken maintaining they have not seen evidence to confirm cooperation.
6: There's a long relationship between uh, Iran and and Hamas. In fact, Hamas wouldn't be Hamas without the support that it's gotten over many years from Iran. We haven't yet seen direct evidence that Iran was behind this particular attack or involved, but the, the support over many years is clear.
3: Joining us now is Norman Ruhl, Senior Advisor for the Transnational Threats Project at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Norman spent 34 years in the Central Intelligence Agency. Norman, wonderful to catch up with you under tragic circumstances, obviously. Norman, we have to start with the main question that was on the lips of everybody. What happened and how did this happen over the weekend?
6: Good morning. Israeli security forces, primarily the Shin Bet, have had responsibility for Gaza and the occupied territories, and they have over the years demonstrated a very capable uh, uh, architecture of, of surveilling Palestinian activity. And this has allowed them to frustrate multiple Palestinian attacks and identify, locate, and when necessary, neutralize Hamas and other Palestinian officials. In this case, it appears uh, that Hamas was able to develop a compartmented uh, planning, execution, and training program within that security bubble that not only evaded Israeli surveillance, but enabled um, uh, this operation to be undertaken without Israel seeing indicators that this existed. To be clear, this is an intelligence failure by Israel. However, they have a very capable intelligence service and are mm-hmm. catching up. And also, to be clear, this is a failure by the international community as well. American other countries do not cede the protection of their nationals to Israeli security services. And we also did not see the indicators of, right. of these of the, offenses.
2: Norman, wonderful to have you with us and with your years and years with the CIA. This is not Matt Damon in a movie. This is reality. How do you take over a geography that is two times the size of Washington, D.C. and has two million people crammed into it? How do you link your intelligence knowledge with a military effort to de-Hamas Gaza?
6: It's... It's possible, and Israel has done this for some time with Gaza, the uh, West Bank, and for Lebanon. However, you raise an extremely important point. For Israel to consider ground operations or hostage rescue operations, this is one of the most challenging environments on the planet. It's not just that this is a concentrated civilian areas. This is a concentrated civilian area with, with very tall buildings. Now, the United States and Iraq and, and Britain have some experience in working this in Iraq and Afghanistan, but these were much smaller areas which much, with much <laughs> shorter buildings. For Israel, this is an extraordinarily difficult challenge, and no one should underplay the casualty uh, count that is likely to happen for Israelis and Palestinians if ground operations are uh, undertaken.
2: You look at the narrow like that, and you also look at the bigger. In your writings, you talk of a multipolar dynamic, and you take the tensions of the Middle East and the Levant back to 1870 and 1930, way before 1967 as well. What's the multipolar dynamic that Israel
6: faces right now? Well, it's a good news, bad news story. You have a situation where, on the good news side, there are there are strategic, long-term, and and continuing drivers by for the Saudis and for the Emiratis and others to promote regional integration that must include Israel because of its geographic location. That hasn't gone away, and that will sustain the ongoing diplomatic process between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel to restore relations. On the downside, you have a a, a international community that is cracked apart. So pulling together Russia, China, and the European community in a way that actually promotes a peace plan of some consequence will be impossible.
1: There's also a question about the role of Iran, especially as the Wall Street Journal is reporting that they had an active role in helping to plan this attack. We have not heard from the U.S. government confirming that. They said they are investigating. What are the potential consequences? What is the escalation type of potential if Iran is deemed to have had an active role in planning these attacks?
6: We should be careful about the report. Iran is unlikely to have played a uh, robust active role in planning the attack, simply because they are not on the ground. They do not have personnel on the ground. They would not be able to provide an intelligence uh, 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 input to those operations, and their involvement would compromise the compartmentation of the operation. However, Iran has provided drones, training, money for over the years, as Secretary Blinken has correctly stated. Hamas would not be Hamas without Iran. But that fits Iran's modus operandi. In essence, what they do is they enable proxies to conduct operations that parallel Iran's strategic objectives. Those operations play out. Iran is able to say it supported them and enabled them. Iran achieves its strategic goals. But Iran's direct hand is not seen, and thus Iran escapes international punishment.
1: The speculation is that one of the strategic aims was to disrupt the Saudi Arabia-Israeli agreement that was being worked on and coming to some sort of fruition in the next couple of weeks and days. How much do you think that that has been iced? How much are people really discussing that aspect of the strategic potential motivation for the timing of this attack?
6: There's no question that that was likely one of the motivations, but this is a pie that has multiple pieces in it. This operation was clearly developed over many, many months. It would have taken a very long time, if only because of the compartmentation requirements, to pull this together, and therefore it had a number of reasons. The Raisi government and its proxies have maintained an assertive foreign policy posture for for a very long time. There was no specific incident that provoked this, but certainly one of the benefits for hardliners in Iran In the proxies is that this will uh, complicate, uh, if not disrupt, the uh, uh, diplomatic process underway.
3: Norman, we know based on reports they have taken scores of hostages. Does that complicate Israel's response to this? Hugely.
6: And we should note that these are international hostages. Uh, Reports are unconfirmed, but there may be uh, Chinese, French, Thai, as well as American hostages, uh, as well as among the dead. Uh, in Israel. So the international, this is in many ways a Hamas attack against the international community. These hostages will be dispersed within Gaza, uh, isolating them and identifying their locations and developing uh, rescue plans will be very, very difficult. The United States has considerable experience here and will no doubt be sending intelligence, security personnel to assist the Israelis, who are also very good at this. This will also inject a considerable amount of complications to diplomacy. So we've watched the United States, Saudi Arabia and others engage Qatar, Turkey, which has good relations with Hamas, and a variety of actors to see how this plays out. It is not inconceivable that you will have outreach to Iran itself to assist on this. That rarely works out well. We should recall what happened last when Iran had hostages in Lebanon.
2: Norman, uh, Kissinger, Mearsheimer, Robert D. Kaplan, and frankly you, is this a day where America shifts back to real politic? I mean, forget about shuttle diplomacy and all of that. This morning, is it all about a real politic that we think we have forgotten and moved on from?
6: Well, the line of the Middle East is unlike Las Vegas, what happens in the Middle East never stays in the Middle East. And the uh, Biden administration will need to develop not only a strategy to address this issue, a strategy to see how this impacts existing uh, programs such as the Iran and Saudi and other initiatives. But likewise, they're going to have to staff this out. They're going to have to apply a lot of personnel and policymaker bandwidth, which will come at a cost of other issues. This is a seismic issue which is going to transform regional uh, policymaking and international policymaking. We're in the early days and the ripples of this attack. in terms of policy and domestic politics are still playing out.
3: I want to ask you this question to wrap things up, Norman. No Speaker in the House, no Ambassador to Israel, Egypt, to Lebanon. Is that a symbolic failure or will that have real-world consequences?
6: Well, it's certainly a symbolic problem, but we shouldn't discount the capabilities and roles of our chargés in these locations of intelligence personnel, of military personnel. Those communication channels remain robust, and these, these capitals often deal directly with the United States in Washington through their very able ambassadors. So the system of handling this is underway and will be executed crisply. It just would be better and easier if these personnel were in place, and Israel has received a considerable boost in the number of iron dome interceptors and ammunition it will need and that has occurred without the uh uh, house being in order
3: but we need to fix this norman thank you for your insight this morning and hopefully we can catch up again before the end of the week norman Raw there of the center for strategic and international studies
2: subscribe to the bloomberg surveillance podcast on apple spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m eastern on bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in and the Bloomberg business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keane and this is Bloomberg.